to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, dear listeners, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am your host, Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two, how do I describe it? Bedeviled by the weather and the elements, co-hosts, Dr. <laughs> Liam Johnson and Dr. Richard Lee. Lee, how you doing? What's going on? Oh, God, please make it stop raining. It's been raining for four days. <laughs> Start building the ark. Yeah, it's raining, man, because, you know, that has advantages. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm bracing for another Chicago snowstorm, so we'll see. Is, doesn't Chicago mean snowstorm in the original language of the people exactly, area? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Smelly fucking snow is what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. On today's episode, we are going to be having a conversation about the simulation hypothesis. So I don't know if you think this is happening or it's not happening, if this is real or not. But this is the episode to try and work through that question if you have it in your minds. So before we do that, though, we're going to get some drink orders and we're going to hear some rants and raves. So, Lee, what are your drinks and what are you ranting and raving about? Given the weather and my general down mood today, I'm just going to go with something very simple. I'm going to have a Buffalo Trace, two fingers, neat. Today, I am ranting about consensus. Like, what the hell is consensus? Like, how do we reach it? (laughs) You guys know that I'm a proceduralist at heart. And I feel like I've just been in so many meetings where at some point someone says, well, now that we've reached a consensus... And I'm not sure that we actually did reach a consensus. And then they sort of represent that to everyone as if what it meant was a unanimity of opinion. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just really frustrated with this idea of consensus. Isn't consensus just what the whitest, cisest, headest man in the room right. thinks? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it, is. it should be called congemsis because Jim thinks this is what's happening. I am raving, however, about severance. Not severance as losing a limb or being fired, but the new Apple TV show Severance. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but this is the most Black Mirror-y new television series that I've seen since Black Mirror. And you guys know how much I love Black Mirror and how much I miss it. Consensus is based on this premise that employees can opt to sever their memory and it separates their work life and their home life. So while they're at home, they don't know anything about what happened at work. And while they're at work, they don't have any memories of their outside life. You can imagine how this is going to go. It's sort of creepy. The workplace becomes this kind of weird purgatory, but it's got some really interesting things going on. It's only about four episodes in and the writing's really good. So yeah, I'm really interested to see where this goes. Severance, a uh, new series on Apple TV. I've heard about it, so thank you for that recommendation. All right, Rick, what are you drinking and what are your rants and what are your raves? I'm in a holding pattern, so I'm going to go back to one of my standards. I'm going to have a Kronbacher Pills. I usually fall back to beer when I don't know what I want to drink. My rant this week is the incredibly complex way in which we file our taxes. So I have some friends who live in the Netherlands. And they get a postcard from the Netherlands Taxing Authority that says, here's your numbers. If this looks great, sign it and send it back. And they're done. That's it. Yeah. It's over. 
And, you know, with my dad dying last year, there were some complications that came up with that. And holy crap, is our tax filing system unduly complicated. So straighten that out, people. I'm not in favor of a flat tax. I'll pay my fair share. But like, you know, the numbers just tell me. I think that every April, like, you know what I earned. That's why I filled out the W-9. What the hell? (laughs) This week, I'm raving, and you could probably imagine the travels that took me here, but I'm raving about Sammy Davis Jr. as a singer. I think he's often overlooked as a singer, but man, that guy had an incredible voice. And he also... On upbeat songs especially, you just get wrapped in the joy of Sammy Davis Jr. hood. You know, I know he ended up backing Richard Nixon and that was all kind of bullshit and so on. But man, that guy had an incredible voice. He's got a great version of I've Got You Under My Skin and it's just him backed by a conga player. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And he had style for miles. Style for miles. Yeah, he sure did. That's right. He sure did. Look into our podcast this season on style for more on that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? In honor of the fact that through Shaker and Spoon, which I've shouted out before, call us Shaker and Spoon. Call us. I am just going to have a couple of fingers of Anejo tequila. Hmm. Aged tequila, so smooth. I'm not even going to rick it by putting it on rocks. <laughs> a rock. A rock. A rock. A rock. I'm just going to drink it straight. I guess I'm having a shot of tequila if I can get through the verbiage. That's what I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is he just asking for a tequila shot? Am I, am right. I mishearing this? But I wanted it to sound fancy. The, the peer pressure from Rick is just overwhelming. <laughs> so my rant and my rave are actually the same thing. My rant is the new W. Kamau Bell documentary that's streaming on Showtime. We need to talk about Bill Cosby. It's a you know, great documentary. does a history of Cosby's career, his rise to fame, dramatic rise to fame. But you get an amazing sense of all the structures and institutions and people that were in place that allowed for these various sexual abuses that were taking place literally over decades. And the fact mm-hmm. that the more famous and the more influential and the more rich he became, the more severe and frequent these acts came about. So... Fuck you to the entire network of people that enable sexual predators. So that's my rant. My rave is W. Kamau Bell's brilliant documentary, We Need to Talk About Bill Cosby. My real appreciation for it is that Bell has the courage to investigate this, not just because it's very controversial, that would be easy, but because he understands what Bill Cosby meant to generations of American popular culture consumers, comedy fans, but specifically what Bill Cosby meant to African-Americans. And the Hmm. documentary starts out by Bell asking various talking heads, who is Bill Cosby? And I swear to God, to a person, each one starts out with a... Like this Mm -hmm. deep sigh, like, man, I got to, you know, so, I mean, it's powerful, but it's necessary. And I'm glad that Bell has the courage to do it because at watching it, I'm confronting things and trying to deal Mm. with the complexity of this guy's humanity. Terry Gross interviewed him on Fresh Air and he started talking about the Cosby show. And she said, did you identify with the Huxtables? And without missing a beat, he said, Terry, I was a Huxtable. Mm, And I think confronting that is something incredibly courageous. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Lee, you're in the hot seat today. What are we talking about? Is this the real life? 
So today we're going to be talking about whether or not we're living in a simulation. This is actually based on a very influential paper by Nick Bostrom that he wrote in 2003, which was called The Simulation Hypothesis, where he basically puts forward how would we know or what would have to be the conditions for us to know whether or not we are actually living in a simulation. And we're going to talk about sort of what exactly Bostrom's argument was there. But this is also something that I think is in popular culture, in popular media. It's re-entered the public imagination very recently because another famous philosopher, Chalmers, just published a book called Reality Plus, where he's talking about the reality of virtual reality, of simulated reality. And so a lot of people have been talking about it again. I also think, honestly, anyone living in the 21st century this has probably been somewhere in your nightmares, right? Like, is the real world really real or am I living in a simulation? So that's what we're going to talk about today. What is the actual simulation hypothesis? Why is it important? And does it really matter if the answer is yes or no? you guys. So first things first, let's talk about Bostrom's simulation hypothesis. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds of the mathematics and the physics of this. So I'm going to try to present it in a relatively straightforward way, which I think all of our listeners can understand fairly easily. But in his 2003 paper, Bostrom basically showed that at least one of three possibilities must be true. Either One, all human-like civilizations in the universe go extinct before they develop the technological capacity to create simulated realities. Two, if any human civilization does reach this phase of technological maturity, none of them will bother to run simulations or they won't want to run simulations. Or three, advanced civilizations would have the ability to create many simulations and would do it in which case that would mean that there are far more simulated worlds than non-simulated ones. So that's the hypothesis. And there has been much ink spilled, or I should say many bits and bytes written about this hypothesis. I also want to kind of situate this in Bostrom's larger project, which is about future humanity which he sometimes calls, you know, the post-human age, which you can find in a lot of literature surrounding the technological singularity, et cetera. But basically that we are moving towards a time where we may have the technological capacity to create simulated realities. And if we can see that on the horizon, then we have to imagine if we were capable of doing that, would we do it? And then, of course, if it is possible and we do think that people would do it, then it is more likely that we are currently right now living in a simulation. So let me just make sure we're all clear on what the simulation hypothesis is or any questions about it. I think I understand it. And in thinking about this topic and and doing some preparation for the episode, I mean, it, it could turn out that this is just going to be pedantic, but I worry about the use of the word simulation because it seems as if what we're really talking about is a world that is constructed in order to be a world, whereas the simula in that word means a likeness. 
Mm-hmm. And there could be a created world that bears no likeness to any actually existing world. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a better word would be a created world or a virtual world rather than a simulation. So I want to follow up on that because I think Rick has a good point. So the question is what makes it simulated? Is it important that this newly constructed world outside of our base reality, if we have a base reality, that that world is meant to accurately reproduce what would be our base reality? Or does it not matter? As Rick said, maybe you want to create something completely fantastic that still has you believing that this is quote unquote real, but it's not the same as the base reality. Okay, so you guys are just going to jump right into the weeds of the physics of this. So, like, so a couple of things maybe we should start off with. So, By the way, I was jumping into the metaphysics. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I will be using the term quantum at some point. Actually, I literally am about to use that term. And blockchain. It turns out here that, that metaphysics and physics may be the same thing. So uh, one of Albert Einstein's colleagues, one of the last physicists who actually worked with Albert Einstein was this guy named John Wheeler. And you'll remember that the first part of the 20th century, physics was the study of physical objects. So everything was reducible to particles. This is what we call the Newtonian model. But then quantum physics was discovered. And we realized that, in fact, what's at the kind of bottom of things is just a field of probabilities and not actually physical objects. That was the sort of second wave of quantum physics. The third wave and this is where Wheeler is important, was the discovery that really at the core level, everything is information. Everything's based on bits. So Wheeler was the person who came up with the phrase it from bit. So the idea that anything that we see is really bits of information. So in that sense, I think the question, why are we calling the simulation hypothesis the simulation hypothesis? Because that suggests that what's being simulated is some actual Newtonian universe. If that's not the case, if there are no actual worlds like that, then why would we call this a simulation? I think that's a very important question. But I also think that if we imagine that we are living in a simulation, we are living in a simulation in which we are the kinds of players, subjects, who do believe that the world is a really real world out there, a really real Mm. physical world. And so it would make sense for us to call this a simulation. So in the first direction you were going, it's called a simulation because, well, no, I'm not sure I even would buy that. It's clear that if we are living inside a simulation, then it could be the case that Newtonian physics itself is not real but is part of a constructed world. And that there might be other constructed worlds that never went through this, you know, people talk about the Gutenberg parentheses, so maybe there's a Newtonian parentheses that (laughs) we're going to come out of, and we're not going to think about objects in the way that we do in a Newtonian-like world. And so that's really interesting to think. And then it's, uh, again, it's not a similarity to anything. But then the second point you made, Lee, then starts getting into a kind of inception kind of situation because it presupposes that we are the kind of beings who think the world is Newtonian-like in some of its capacities, but who are we independent of the simulation? 
In other words, we could also be entirely products of the simulation, in which case the simulation might be running. What do people do when they think the world operates on Newtonian physics? And then slowly over centuries, we reveal the quantum reality. How much do they freak out by that? Well, I think that you're getting at what is really interesting about this hypothesis. Again, we don't know whether or not we're living in a simulation. First of all, whether it's a simulation, right, which has to do with those questions of the basic nature of this world or the universe, physics. And so really what we're doing here is we're talking about probabilities, the probability that it is a simulation, the probability that the nature of the physical world, if it is physical at all, is one way or another way. The probability that we might have an understanding of it that is other than what it is, but is more or less like what it really is. You know, the probability that it really isn't anything, right? I mean, all of these are probabilities, which is why I think this is a really interesting philosophical question, especially right now in the 21st century, where I think anyone who uses the internet, who's been on Zoom, who is on social media, et cetera, can understand why this is an important question and how complicated it really is. I love this because I really have to pay attention. <laughs> you know. He's like, unlike all the rest of the conversations, where I just phone it in. <laughs> like episode 45, I told you, I don't pay attention to a lot of shit, so... <laughs> But what struck me, and this goes back to the beginning of your statement, is this idea, and I hope I'm articulating it correctly, what proof do we have that we exist outside of this simulation, if it's a simulation? And I love the fact that Rick brings up this thing that maybe we're being used as test subjects in order to gauge the responses or the ways in which certain types of, Lee, I'm going to borrow this from you, I'm no longer going to use the term consciousness, but certain types of intelligences mm -hmm. function within certain circumstances. Now, for me, the sci-fi in me goes, okay, well, who are those beings who've constructed this experiment? And what is the purpose of trying to discover and understand the particular types of reactions to certain circumstances and types of knowledge? Okay, so I think that you guys are jumping way ahead. I want to slow us down a little bit and go, okay. back, go, go back to the hypothesis. Let me just ask a very simple question. Given the dramatic and rapid advance of technologies that we've seen only in our lifetimes, only in the last 50 years, let's ask a couple of questions. One, do we believe that we could see on the horizon the possibility that human beings could create a simulated world that would be convincing enough that the players in that world might not know that they're living in a simulation? That's the first question. Second, if we had those technological capabilities, do you believe that human beings would create those simulated worlds? Let's assume that we are in a simulation. So at least within this simulation that we call the world, we're right now reaching certain computational limits that have to do with the ways in which we've constructed computers. It turns out that, for example, Intel has gotten around some of this computational bottleneck by doing a bit of pre-processing. And let me try not to get in the weeds, and I'll come back, Lee, to why I'm, I'm saying this in relation to your question. So in any computer program, there will be decisions that will be made. And then once a decision's made, then the program goes off into this branch and then other decisions and so on. And 
what Intel realized is they could use some downtime of the processor to actually run all the branches. Mm -hmm. And then when you make the decision, the results are, in a sense, pre-processed. Now, that turns out then to have been a security vulnerability, and it caused tremendous nightmares for tech people. But this was a way just to get around the physical bottleneck. So I think at least until we have a different kind of computing, I'm not sure whether that will be quantum computing. Some people are talking about various forms of biological computing, but we need a form of computing that would be way more immediately responsive than anything we currently have to run a simulation as complicated as the one we are living in. And so I think some paradigm shifts are going to have to be made in computing in order for that to happen. But I'm pretty sure it is going to happen. I'm not sure how close we are, but I'm pretty sure it is. And then once we are able to do it, someone's going to do it. And then once someone does it, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Okay. Yeah. So I agree with you wholeheartedly, as you would say. (laughs) But Charles, what about you? Hey, I actually understood everything he was talking about. Because <laughs> I do my homework, too. Right. When it's going to happen, don't know. It could be 50 years from now. It could be in two years, right? Because we have these amazing breakthrough moments in scientific and technological development. It could be a century from now. But I do agree that it will happen. And here's the thing. It will happen because somebody will know how to make money from it. That will be, mm-hmm. I think, ultimately the motivation and the incentive for this great leap forward in terms of intelligence and the and creations of certain type of realities. I mean, right, we haven't even mentioned meta yet. Okay, so given what both of you just said, going back to Bostrom's trilemma, right. you both just said that number two is false, that it's not going to be the case. You think the probability is low that if we have these technological capabilities that we will not build simulated worlds. So that means we have two other options. Either one is true, you think the probability is high that we will go extinct before we have those technological capabilities, or number three is true, which is that we don't go extinct before we have those technological capabilities, and therefore we do build simulated worlds. You can see here now, if you only have the choice between the two, the dilemma instead of the trilemma, and you think, I don't think we're actually going to go extinct before this happens, then the probability that we are living in a simulated world has gone up a lot. Sure. Yeah. Even just on your own argument. Now, I personally think that most people, and I'm including people who have very sophisticated understandings about how emergent technologies work and people who don't have sophisticated understandings of how emergent technologies work would agree with what we just said, would immediately rule out number two. Then the question is, how many people do you think really are reckoning with the extinction of our species? I don't think many people are doing that. And so I think that for most people, the probability that we are living in a simulated universe is extremely likely. And the reason I'm trying to baby step us through this is for everyone listening, if this is something that you've never thought about, I imagine that if you just walked through that argument with us, that suddenly you have to reckon in your own mind now with the possibility that there's a good probability that we're living in a simulation. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, 
If you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. You heard it here, folks. Hotel bar sessions. Come for the drinks. Stay for the existential nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) I think you said you had a couple of thoughts about this. What I'm wondering is, does it make any epistemological or metaphysical difference? That is, does it make a difference in how we know the world or what the world is to think about the fact that any philosopher, any theologian from the monotheistic Christian, Jewish, Islamic traditions basically is arguing that we are living in a simulation because as being created by God, we existed in all of these traditions in God's mind. And so basically God is running a simulation. And for me to think that this might be a simulation is not that existentially horrific any more than God is existentially horrific. I agree. I think that's a really interesting point because it seems to be the concept of an afterlife, a concept of a heaven, of a paradise, which is asserted based upon the belief system as the truer foundational way of being in relationship to whatever force deity that you claim. And you're right. And we're going through this thing called life in order to determine if you believe in heaven or hell, if we will behave in a way that will get us back to that primal, that foundational way of existing. Back to the source. Back to the source. Yeah, but just to get back to how Rick introduced that question, namely to say, does it make any epistemological difference if we know it or not? I think in most religious and especially philosophical traditions, it does matter if we know. I think it does matter for most faith traditions that whatever the understanding of reality is, even if human life as we understand ourselves living it is not the ultimate reality, even if there's some other ultimate reality and this is either a simulation or a kind of preamble or whatever, it's important to know that in the faith tradition. And of course, in the philosophical tradition, we have long history of philosophers, Plato, Descartes, the whole 20th century analytic brain in a vat conversation, right? And we have a long tradition of philosophers saying it does matter that we know, just to borrow from Descartes' meditations, whether or not there are people walking by my window or if there are just hats and coats walking by. <laughs> Well, okay, but two things. I mean, one is by the end of the meditations and by the end of his life, Descartes was never able to convincingly answer that I can know whether there are people walking or they're just automata or, you know, empty coats and hats. And so Descartes, I think, by the end of the meditation says, well, look, I know that God exists. I know that I exist. And I know something like a world exists. And the rest you know, we're probably better off just assuming it is the way it appears to us. 
but we're never going to get there for sure. So I find that interesting. Like there are maybe certain things that matter, whether we know them or not, and there are other things that don't matter. The second point is, I wonder, Lee, if in these religious traditions, the importance of knowing is tied to the position that our behavior or our doing good depends on our knowing this. Then to put this in the form of a simulation, isn't the worry of some, well, if this is just a simulation, then everyone would do whatever the hell they want to do because none of it matters or nothing matters. And I'm not sure that follows. I'm not sure that knowing that I'm in a simulation means that life is meaningless. And I'm not sure it follows knowing, for example, that there is a God, if I know that there is a God, that my behaving well automatically follows from that. Yeah, 100% agree with you. And just to get back to Descartes, you're right that at the end of the meditations, Descartes has not given us any certainty that the world outside of his mind actually exists or exists in the way that he thinks that it does. All he claims certainty about is that he is thinking, right? Like that there is thinking. Here's where it gets interesting because here the question shifts from is the world simulated? What kind of world is this world? To what kind of subject am I? And in the many discussions that have followed from Bostrom's simulation hypothesis, one of the things that constantly comes up is that if we were living in a simulation, I think Rick's right. Maybe it wouldn't matter in all the ways that Rick just said. It would matter, though, if we were a non-player character or a player character. So sometimes they're called NPCs or PCs. Like if we're a player character then maybe it doesn't matter, right? We're still making choices. We're something like a consciousness that has an understanding of itself is free in this universe. If we were a non-player character, right, I think that then we get back to all the questions that people have about determinism. And then I think it does make a difference if everything is already determined. I kind of want to go back to Rick's point about this in a religious mode. The knowledge of whether this is a simulation, if you're thinking about simulation as me cooling my heels or going through these particular actions to determine where I go or what ultimate reality or foundational reality that I return to or enter, depending on what you believe. And it seems to me that that's a real serious ethical weakness in that if you're only engaging in the right because you feel like that's the only way that I can escape the simulation and get to this foundational reality, then it really calls into question one's moral clarity because it seems completely self-serving and then that would seem to undermine the purpose of the simulation. The point is for you to engage, learn, act out, become a certain type of person. But if you're only becoming that certain type of person because you realize there is a reward, the benefit is much more uh, extrinsic. It's external to you versus the internal growth, development, spiritual elevation. Then that seems to be a, a huge problem with knowing that it's a simulation. I mean, that's why this topic is so interesting, because one side we haven't taken up, which I think Lee's pointing to Descartes or even, you know, Plato, the cave would be, I think, a similar kind of philosophical approach. But if we are living in a simulation, these questions arise precisely because we don't know what the simulation is for. Just to give you an example, like I could imagine that we are living in the middle of a simulation that was produced by a civilization that was on the brink of or started recognizing that maybe they were contributing to greenhouse gases on their planets. 
and wanted to run a simulation to see how a civilization under the conditions of capitalism and so on would play out a climate catastrophe, whether they would come to change or not. Maybe they're trying to figure out whether to get rid of capitalism or to save the planet and so on. And in that sense, like, I think I'm happy to be a player in that simulation and maybe even not a player. I think that a lot of this depends on what's trying to be achieved in the construction of the simulation. I like this question because it reminds me, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize to Charles because this is... uh This is going to freak you out. (laughs) But this reminds me of another hypothesis that has been floating around on the internet for a couple of decades now, I think, sometimes referred to as Rocco's Basilisk. So the idea here is that in the future, either us or some post-human or AI itself has achieved the capacity to create simulated worlds that are like the reality that we think that we're currently living in right now. And in this story, the future AIs build these worlds in which to cause the people who tried to impede the development of general AI caused suffering for those people. So once you've been told this story, you now either are someone who is going to impede this technological process or help it along And so if you don't do that, then you will be in one of these simulated worlds in which, you know, whatever the future AI or the future post-humans create a world in which there's COVID and capitalism and, you know, uh, four-way stops. (laughs) The four-way stops, you'll have to take me through (laughs) that that simulation. You mean instead of roundabouts or like... I hate four-way stops, but it might just be Memphis drivers. Like that. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of roundabouts, so I want to be in that world. So if I yeah. have to bow down to the robot overlords, the AI overlords to get in the roundabout world, I'm with that. That sounds like the fuck around and find out hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, just a reminder that there's a lot of different ways that you can keep up with our conversations here at Hotel Bar Sessions. We're on Facebook and Twitter, of course. We also post each of our episodes to our YouTube channel every week. And you can, of course, subscribe and rate and even comment on our podcast on whatever podcasting platform that you listen to. But the most important way that you can support us and the way that we would really appreciate is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and consider supporting us with a monthly pledge. We've got several different levels of patronage that you can sign up for from as low as $4 a month to much higher than that. But we especially are looking for people to support us at the designated driver level on our Patreon page. So again, that's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate you listening to us and please tell your friends. Now back to the episode. I know, Lee, you said that Charles and I jumped the gun, and I was probably responsible for that because I am a metaphysician to the very core of my being. And so, like, I just want to get to the metaphysical root of this. 
And it seems as if it becomes almost impossible for a discussion of this to take place without the assumption that there either is a reality outside of all simulations or that were we to come to know that our reality is a simulation, that then we would stop calling it reality. In other words, I'm wondering why simulation just isn't reality. Okay, well, I think in the thought experiment, the simulation isn't reality, or it's at least not the only reality, because by calling it a simulation, you're acknowledging that there's another reality in which the simulation is built. I mean, you don't have to think that that's true or not. I'm just saying, like, within the rules of the thought experiment, that's why we're calling it a simulation. Because there's the world in which there's the technological capacity to build simulations, and then there are the simulations. Now, the simulations don't necessarily have to be like the world in which the simulations are built, but they are different from the world in which the simulations are built, and they are at least similar in as much as they are worlds. Rick, can I ask a question? Are you asking why are we necessarily privileging the creators of a simulation versus those who occupy the simulation? I think what Rick is asking is, might it just be the case that there is no other than the simulation? Which I I think is exactly the kind of question that a metaphysician would ask. And by the way, Rick, if ever we are able to create simulations and I get to choose my player, I'm going to be like, oh, I want to be Rick, the metaphysician. (laughs) (laughs) Choose your weapons. (laughs) So I think that that's obviously an important question to ask, but at least in this thought experiment, there is a reality to the simulation, but the simulation is a simulation in relation to the reality in which the simulation is built. Okay, so I often tell my students that there is a very thin line between speaking like a philosopher and speaking like you're high. (laughs) (laughs) And I just crossed it. (laughs) No, no, no. And and in this class, we're going to try to stay on the philosophy side of that line. (laughs) I'm going to say this in a way that I hope I don't sound like I'm high because I, I am certainly not. I'm not opposed to being high. <laughs> and, and, but anyhow, at the current moment, I am not. But the very construction of the thought experiment shifts in its construction from a number of positions. Position one, let's call it, would be me, the subject who is a player or a non-playing character within the simulation and for whom there is no outside. Mm -hmm. But the very construction of the thought experiment then takes the role of the constructor of the simulation. And a number of these seemingly problematic moments come up when I suddenly switch from one of those positions to the other. Knowing that there's a constructor, now let me be in the world. Oh, my God, that sucks that I'm someone else's Mm plaything. I think that's the worry. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yes, you are someone else's plaything in the same way that if you're a computer programmer and you make a character in a game, Mario or Luigi, Luigi is your plaything. And so the moment then I say, well, what if I'm just Luigi? is a moment in which I start adopting the position of the constructor of the simulation itself. Mm -hmm. Now, that might be a sign that the simulation is a bad one because we have this kind of window out 
that if we start pushing it, we're going to suddenly see, holy crap, we're in a simulation. And so maybe the other simulation doesn't have the kind of subjectivity we have, and they're not going to have these kinds of problems. But does that make sense, these two positions? Yeah, I think that it makes complete sense. And I think that what you have just demonstrated is the value of this thought experiment, which is really just a game of probabilities. And so you're right, depending on how you reckon these probabilities, it's going to shift your perspective. And you're right, there are going to be consequences for your own moral, political, metaphysical investments with each nudge of the probabilities in one way or another, and each small change in your perspective from one to another. At the base of this is that we can't know. We can't know the future and we can't know the ultimate nature of reality. But we are living and we are making choices and we are deciding our commitments, our moral and ethical and metaphysical commitments, either way, on the basis of probabilities. I think what you've just shown is the importance of this thought experiment for figuring those kinds of things out for yourself. And of course, not figuring them out ultimately, right? Like we're not going to figure it out. Ultimately, we're going to have to, at some point, just pick a player, right? And play that game. (laughs) Choose your weapons. (laughs) Well, you already said you choose metaphysics. Yeah. Well. (laughs) I'm going to choose a gun. I'm going to choose a four-way stop. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like Rick pointed out a huge problem with the form of the hypothesis in and of itself that the ability to check in and out to have various subject positions vis-a-vis it leads to a certain sort of inconsistency of actually answering the question. But that's what I'm trying to say is that this is designed not to be answered, just to be reckoned with, just to say whether or not I'm committing to something being more or less likely, being more or less probable. All right, so this conversation has been all over the place. You made a liar out of me right at the top of the episode. I was like, we are not going to get into the weeds. And we got into the weeds. We got into the weeds. And do you know what we did? We simulated more weeds while we were there. Right. So, and now we all sound like we're smoking weeds. So. Let's describe okay. that as slipping off the bar stool. So we all kind of yeah, slipped right. off the bar stool. But let's pick ourselves right. back up and dust it off. Get up. Get seated. All right. We went out for a smoke and right. came back. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to keep us on a really focused question for this segment. I want to ask each of you, do you believe that we're living in a simulation? And your answer can be yes or no. It cannot be, I don't know. So even if you, of course, don't know, add up your probabilities and say, yes, I do or no, I don't. And then if you think we do, why it matters that we are or why it matters that we're not. So Charles, I'm going to go to you first. Do you think we're living in a simulation? I think we are, and this is why I think so, because, um, oh, well, actually, I, I don't think we live in a simulation. I, I don't. I'm changing that. <laughs> you already broke the rules. Get back on your bar stool. That's how we're not living in a simulation, because I'm breaking the rules. No more tequila shots for Charles. <laughs> a good simulation would allow for me to say, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't think we're living in a simulation. Because I don't have the experience of being conscious of it, then I'm just going to accept that it doesn't exist. That's an interesting point. I would say, I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but I would say the probability is closer to one than zero. 
that is, it's more likely that we are living in a simulation than that we're not. I don't even know why I make rules, you guys. <laughs> so is that a yes? Yes. Well, but see, <laughs> yes. Okay, it's a yes. Clearly, Rick lives in a quantum computing simulation. No, but here, yeah. I mean, so... I was convinced by your earlier argument, Lee, that the hypothesis itself is probabilistic in its argumentation. And so I was trying to stick with that. But by closer to one, I mean, likely, yes. Okay, so let me ask you both this. What difference does it make to you personally, if we're living in a simulation or not? I like to think, based on who I believe and hope myself to be as a moral person, that it would not make a difference if we lived in a simulation or not, that I would still try to have the same investments, have the same commitments, the same self-awareness, and maintain the same relationship to others that I presently have. So for me, it would not make a difference. I would still try to be the same person. And Rick? Well, I think you know my answer to this. I think it doesn't make a difference. I think it makes zero difference. Although, interestingly, I do remember you saying in an episode from last season that if we were living in a simulation and if you knew we were living in a simulation, that you would feel like you had a moral obligation as a, I think you said as a philosophy teacher, not to lie about it. That's right. I agree with that. Yes. So in that sense, knowing that we live in a simulation makes a difference. Yeah. And what I would teach about it is that we're living in a simulation and it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) But if I knew, if I could, whether it be shifting my subject position or having some indisputable proof that we lived in a simulation, I would let people know, and certainly my students, but then instead of saying it doesn't make a difference, I would say, but because this is artifice, doesn't that give us the room and the space to begin to make changes? Doesn't that upend determinism if we know that we're in this construct? I'm not sure if I followed the if-then there. If you know that you're in an artifice, if you're in a simulation, doesn't that mean that you are very clear that what you assume to be invariable steps based upon X, Y, and Z aren't quite there? Especially if we're talking about one that allows for a much more complex programming. So it seems to me that if you're aware of that, then you can really start saying, I'm making a conscious choice to do this or that because I know there's not an absolute to this if we're in that level of sophistication. I'm thinking about this as a weird moment where one can really lay claim to a very real agency because I know that there aren't hardcore rules because the rules have gone away now that I know that I'm in a simulation. Let me get back up on the bar stool because I feel like I'm slipping off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that most people would say that, you know, like if I'm playing Pac-Man and and suddenly I could somehow let Pac-Man know that Pac-Man is in a simulated world. That would not convince Pac-Man that Pac-Man is more free. Right. Unless Pac-Man could just stop eating those dots. Yeah, but the game doesn't change. The the simulated world of Pac-Man doesn't change. The only thing that has changed is that Pac-Man knows that Pac-Man is in a Pac-Man game. Right. That's exactly why I think it wouldn't make a difference. But I thought what Charles was saying was that... Right. I agree. Okay, sorry. Charles and I disagree about this. Okay. I'm trying to think of the name of not Ryan Gossing, the other Ryan who plays Deadpool, and this video game. Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. This movie he was in where he was a character in this first-person shooter game. He realizes he's a player in a game, and he starts causing havoc because he has the awareness that he lives in a simulation. And he's making these conscious choices in terms of how do we disrupt this. If I know that, let's say, gravity isn't a real thing then I start defying gravity. Or I I know that there's the possibility to defy gravity and my choices have real meaning and impact now. Again, I just don't see how that follows because, for example, let's say that, I don't know, a burning bush spoke to me and told me that the world that I'm living in is a simulation. 
I can't now just choose to not get COVID because I know COVID is just part of the game. The world still has its rules and I don't get to change them. I just now know they've been created by some other arbitrary simulation builder. Yeah, that you know that there are rules doesn't give you the ability to violate the rules or change them. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think knowing the rules lets you know Well, the advantage is that other people, if they subscribe to the rules, are now limited by the rules, which gives you a freer hand of motion and movement over and against them if we're thinking about this in a competitive way. Okay, let's say you're running through the park and there are other people running through the park. And just before you come out of the park, I whisper in your ear, Charles, this is a race. You've actually been in a race all along. It's still the case that you're going to come in first or second or third relative to all the runners in the park, just because you know this is a race doesn't mean that there are two people ahead of you that you can just now win the race. Yeah, but then I have the space to say, do I want to participate in the race or do I not want to participate in the race? Do I want no, to pers- you don't because it, Do it's I want still to pursue being first or do I just want to just be like, la- I mean, but there's still room for agency and choice once I'm very cognizant of what the circumstances are. Except I think a lot of the ways in which the simulation hypothesis is discussed leaves out that if we're living in a simulation, then we also are simulated. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what we do is already simulated. It it is constructed by the constructor of the simulation. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's not as if we're free, rational beings that are then plopped into a simulation we're also part of the simulation. So what you're saying is, and this may convince me and get me to move away from this point, if that's the case, and you're right, if we're in a simulation, we're ultimately simulated, then our knowledge of being in a simulation is a part of being a simulant, that it doesn't make a difference, right? Is that what we're saying? That even if you know, it has no meaning. Or it could be a bug in the program. Okay, that's that's another wrinkle, no pun intended, but... (laughs) I mean, I think that we need to make a distinction between saying it has no meaning and it has no significance. It certainly has a meaning that you know, because now you're a different kind of player in this simulation. It might not have any significance to how the world actually plays out for you or how you, as you experience your life, actually plays out. But it does have a meaning. Just like if I told Pac-Man that Pac-Man was in Pac-Man, Pac-Man is still going to run around the maze and eat up little balls, but he might be really sad about it. I mean, the question could be a good meaning, significance, and effect. Maybe the three levels of what that new information may impart. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, and this is going back to the analogy with religions, that if you believe that there's a simulation creator out there that has created this simulation, I think, and I knew that, I think for me, I would be like, what the hell, dude, COVID? Like, what the hell, you know, tornadoes, tsunamis? What the hell, children dying of cancer? You know, I mean, it's like, what kind of sick mind created this simulation? (laughs) It's like a theodicy question. Yes, it is a theodicy question, but I wonder how then this is connected to your idea that you'd rather err on the side of robots' rights than to know that we've accidentally enslaved robots. Because there's a way in which I think what you're complaining about there is that the creators of the simulation have enslaved us, whether Mm. intentionally or accidentally. And so then the, the existential moment comes 
when you recognize not just that you're a simulation or a simulant, but that the constructor of the simulation has constructed it in such a way that you will necessarily suffer. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question. I'm going to ask for both of you to hang on to me because I might slide off my bar stool as as I'm answering this. But I do think that there is a high probability that in the future, you know, if we survive, if we human beings survive, that we will either join with technology, that we will become post-human in the Nick Bostrom sense, and that AI will develop to be another kind of being that we interact with in our worlds if we don't become merged in some way. Therefore, I think in the interim leading up to that, what we want to do is to build responsible machines and to treat machines responsibly so that the world that we're building that is leading to this point where it might be possible that a simulated world can be built will be a world in which the intelligences in that world, the builders of those simulations, have an understanding that we ought not create unnecessary suffering. So when I say that, let's treat robots well, right? Because maybe one day they'll be treating us poorly. That's the argument. No, I like it. I wholeheartedly agree. And I also agree 100%. (laughs) I I think that's a good point. It's an interesting point. And I think we've slipped off the stools and now we're walking around and going into another bar. (laughs) (laughs) We just got IVs of bourbon. Yeah, (laughs) we just walking walking down the street. Noel gave each one of us a handle. And she was like, take that shit someplace else. I just feel like the reason to treat robot or AI consciousness respectfully and provide rights for them, I think it's intrinsic to recognizing their sentience. Not because we hope they're going to be grateful in the future, because that's a huge presumption about their emotional, psychological, if we can say have psyches, but the way in which their intelligence is functioned. So I, I think, yes, we should give robots rights recognize AI rights, but not just in hope that when they take over, they'll treat us kindly, but because we condition of their intelligence and their sentience, we should have respect for that. No, I agree that that is the moral imperative to not cause suffering for something that can suffer. But I think that... Pragmatically, let's kiss up to AI just in case. <laughs> no, but I, th- but I think, well, yeah, but I think that in the, in the context of this simulation hypothesis, where we're imagining a future possibility where simulated worlds could be built, we don't know who the builders are going to be. Maybe they're us. Maybe they're some combination, some melding of us and what we now call artificial intelligence. Maybe there's some future technological intelligence independent of human beings. But what we want whenever that you know, the day that somebody wakes up and says, Eureka, we can build a simulated world. We want the world they're in, the builder's world, to be a world where it's unacceptable to simulate suffering. So, A, you've just given up the fact that humanity will create these simulations. So if AI is going to be building the simulations. You've kind of constructed the creator's of the simulations, the, the AI sentience as sort of like Iron Age gods, where we have to maybe eventually get to making sacrifices to propitiate them in terms of their kindness. Right? Well, I, <laughs> Just, mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that like, for example, if we said, how did narrow AI, what we have right now, how did narrow AI get built? It kind of got built as a combination of human industriousness and machine industriousness. And I think that if we went back 1,000 years and said, this is how it got built, 
first of all, I'm not sure that 1,000 years ago that they wouldn't have said, like, are those humans the same as me, right? Like, is, right. Is this, this is some weird future species where people literally have machines that are in their hands all the time that give them access to literally infinite amounts of information and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, so I'm not sure that they wouldn't say that we are the same species as they are, but they certainly would say that the creators of this future world that allows for the virtual realities and the augmented realities that we already have that allows you and Rick and I to do what we're literally doing right now, which is look at each other on Zoom, have a conversation that we will record and then blast out to however many millions of our listeners a month from now. Right? They, all of that, I'm not sure that they would say like human beings did that. All right. You know, I don't have to imagine actual robot overlords in the future. Wait, so... I'm not sitting in a bar having a drink and a conversation with you. Oops. Oh, Rick. <laughs> what difference does it make then, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> He's a sad Pac-Man. <laughs> doesn't make any difference whatsoever. <laughs> sad Pac-Man, that's going to be my porn name. I never thought I would ever conceive or be witness to that formulation of words. Sad Pac-Man as a porn name is a good place to end. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to imagine the simulation in which that is a move. There you go. Another proof that we're not in a simulation. Because what are the gates that lead to that? <laughs> hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Oh, I think Noel has had just about enough of this, and it's time. Le shock. It's, it's just time because we've been in and out of the bar, on and off stools. It's been a chaotic night. <laughs> Lee, what are your last thoughts on this? Oh, God. I have so many last thoughts, but I'm just going to choose one, which is to say that I'd really like to encourage our listeners to think about the interim between the state of our technological capabilities right now and a future possible state of technological capabilities where we might be able to build a simulation and to think about the moves that we're making in between those. Because right now, I don't think that people fully appreciate how close we are to augmented reality and virtual reality being a part of all of our regular lives. And there are ways that this could go really well and be amazing. And then there are really, really terrible things that I could imagine. I want to just say one thing, which is that on HBO a few years ago, there was a really excellent miniseries called Years and Years. And it takes place in the very near future. 
And in one scene, you see a couple who has a teenage daughter at the breakfast table. And the teenage daughter is sitting at the breakfast table and she has on her face an Instagram filter. So, you know, the Instagram filter is like the puppy dog or, you know, whatever. And when I say she has it on her face, I don't mean like she has a mask on her face. I mean, it's an augmented reality. So when her parents are looking at her and talking to her, they're talking to this filter and not to what we would call her IRL physical face. I think that's going to actually be a reality of our lives very, very soon. Those kinds of augmentations of reality. you know. So like, you don't have to worry about your landscaping anymore. You can just have an augmented reality landscape in your front yard. But in between there and here, a lot of small changes have to be made. And like I said, we can do this badly or we can do it well. And I think the more everybody stops saying this is the matrix and this is science fiction and says, no, this is actually the reality and we need to get on top of it, the better. All right, Rick. I agree with Lee that, as I said before, that simulations are going to happen. And whether we're in a simulation right now or not, simulated reality will find its way into this reality. So there might be meta simulations within this simulation. I also want to point out, as I normally do with all things technological, this has real material world impacts that are not without dramatic consequences. And when I talk about the vast computing power this kind of thing would take, that generates a lot of heat and requires a lot of electricity. And so I hope whoever constructed this simulation that we're in also constructed a way out of global climate change. Yeah, yeah. Charles, what about you? This has really been quite the compelling conversation, and I have to give it to the tequila. It's really helped me work my way through it. But one one thing I will say about this is, and this happens in most of our conversations, but I think this conversation, this topic, really revealed who we are at our core in terms of our philosophical sensibilities. Lee, your immersion and commitment to thinking about these questions of technology interfacing with human development of life obviously came to the fore. Rick, your metaphysical inclinations were just really there. And, you know, my sense of thinking about myself as a political thinker and looking at questions of power, disparities, access to or not came to the fore. So if nothing else, this was one of those episodes where we were stripped to the core and shown for who we fundamentally are, which I think is a really a nice thing to see and be reminded of. Which Noelle also did not appreciate. No, when we she all got did not. Down. We stripped down. <laughs> and, you know, I know listeners think I'm being metaphorical. Eh, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. What does it matter? Mm. <laughs> uh, since we have no designated driver, which normally occurs with each new Patreon subscriber, remember, look for us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. Today, I'll just be calling the cab. Anybody else want to ride? Yeah, I do. And can we bring Sad Pac-Man with us? Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs>